Thank you, Kelly, Pfaffenbergers, all of you guys, thank you. Uh, leading us choir, thank you. Um, if you have your Bibles, I invite you, Colossians 3 is where we're going to be, verse 5 is where we'll be reading today. Um, but before we get there, I will tell you, um, and today was just another reminder, one of my favorite things about moving here to Farmer's Branch is we've been able to be a part of the team, the Jaguars. And uh, I don't know how much of a terror we really were in the CFBSA, but you didn't want to play us, all right? Uh, we, by pastoral count and ministerial count, we won more than we lost. I'm um, not sure if that's accurate or not, but uh, we're going to say that. And, uh, but it was such a joy to get connected with those families, to create an environment where those kids just learn to love soccer. Um, each week, Coach Matt and I um, had the exhausting joy of trying to teach kids how to play soccer. And so we had kids that had never played an organized sport before in their life and trying to understand out of bounds and that you can stop because they would chase the ball three fields over if we let them. They run harder out of bounds than they ever do inside the lines. We, we would try to teach some strategy, like when you're running full speed, it's hard to get it in the smaller goal, and so we need to slow down so we can score in the goal. But the hardest thing we ever had to teach was aggression. Aggression is not easy on five- and six-year-olds, and so we devised a game called Get It Out of There. And what would happen is we would set the kids up beside the goal, and we would start rolling as many balls as we could at them and just yelling in a nice way, get it out of there, get it out of there. And the logic was you don't need to just kind of tap the ball when it's close to the goal. You need to be kicking it as hard as you can in some other direction than the goal. And so get it out of there was one of their favorite games to play, and it was one of my favorite things to yell from the sideline because the ball would start lingering close to our goal, and you have this pack of eight, six-year-olds standing there just kind of looking at it, right? In that, you know, in that kind of flock that they play in. Um, and so I would be yelling from the sidelines, get it out of there, and then I would be known to yell, they're wearing shin guards too, it's okay, just kick. Don't stop kicking. Because we know that the longer the ball lingers close to our goal, the more likely it is to score. And see, that's exactly what Paul is teaching us here. In Colossians chapter 3 today, what Paul is going to be writing is he's saying, put away, put to death, because he knows that the longer something lingers in your life, the more you're going to long for it. And the more you long for it, the more likely it is to be a part of your lifestyle. And so... Just like we would yell at the kids in nice ways, encouragement yelling, get it out of there, keep kicking, don't worry about it, be aggressive. This is what Paul is trying to teach us today. Because if we allow this to linger, it will take root and it will take over. And so... Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 is where we will be today. Last week, we studied the first four verses of chapter 3, and Paul was teaching us, since we have been raised with Christ, since he has changed our lives, then we should be living changed lives. And so we need to set our aim on Christ who is in heaven. We need to set our mind on things above, not on earthly things. We need to know that we have been changed, and so we should live differently. Now, verse 5, he gets very practical with how you live differently. He says this, put to death, therefore, 
What is earthly in you? And he gives a list. This first set of lists is dealing with sexuality stuff. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. And he gives us another list. This is a more relational list, okay? He says you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He goes on to say, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And our final verse today is this. Here, meaning the church among believers in the, in the fellowship of believers, here there is no, or there is not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray together. God, speak. Lord, there are places that we need to be convicted today in this text. Convict us. There are times that we need to be comforted, Lord. Comfort us. There are times and places that we need to be challenged, Lord, and compelled to live differently. Lord, do not let us leave here unchanged. But may we leave here ready to take radical steps for the sake of holiness, as you call us to do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Paul starts off, verse 5, put to death. He didn't say, try to stop limit. He didn't say, make a plan that doesn't bother you too much. No, he says, put it to death. Kill it. Kill this. Don't let it remain on life support. Don't let it have a breath. Don't let it linger around. Don't give it a crack in your life. No, get it out of there. If you think Paul is being too much, remember how Jesus talked about sexuality and stuff? He says, if your hand is causing you to stumble, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Gouge it out. Paul is speaking in a very similar vein to how Jesus teaches when he says, you must kill it. Cut off its supply lines. Fight it from the start. Don't give it an inch. Don't let it grow. Because he knows that if we let it linger, it will become a longing, and longings are indulged. So Paul starts with this first list, and it deals with sexuality. And you may be going, what in the world was going on 2,000 years ago with sexuality? But honestly, it was a very promiscuous community and culture. Prostitutes and harlots were a very common practice to be purchased. Actually, the idea of sex for procreation was found in the vein of marriage. But the sex for pleasure was found with a prostitute. And so what Paul is saying is, I need to write to you people who have misunderstandings of what is going on. There were major problems, and there are major problems in our culture today. We're just going to expose it, okay? Did you know, I was reading some, and you're going to see some of this in devotional this week, 68% of Christian men regularly seek out pornography. 68% of Christian men, two-thirds. 87% of Christian women have watched pornography. It is an industry that creates more revenue than the MLB, the NBA, and the NFL combined. 
55% of married men are seeking this out at least monthly, 25% of women. And it's ruining lives, but it's also ruining marriages. 56% of marriages that end in divorce note that at least one party had an obscene interest in pornography. The pursuit of sexuality outside of marriage is killing marriages and it's ruining lives. What Paul is saying is it must be put to death. Honestly, the way we need to understand it is kill it or it will kill you. Very simply. Kill it or it will kill you. So what needs to be killed? He says sexual immorality. Generally in that day, that word would have meant the idea of prostitutes or harlots. But it can work for any idea or concept of sexuality that God has not deemed appropriate. If maybe you want to read sexual immorality as a very focused idea, he then moves into impurity, which is any misuse of sexuality. Passions, or maybe yours says lust, that's uncontrollable urges that are being um, given into. Evil desires is the desire for what is forbidden. Covetousness is an unchecked hunger for physical pleasure and release. And what Paul is saying very clearly is it must be put to death. It must get out of there. It must not be in your life. It must be killed. He says it turns into covetousness, which is idolatry. It's a really fascinating way to think about it. But those who have battled against sexual temptation know that it becomes such a strong want and desire in your life that it overshadows everything else. You're always looking for that next release, that next fix, that next hit, that deeper and darker version. Idolatry, most basically, is the worship of anything over God. And when sexual temptation rules your life, it becomes your God, putting every bit of its desires over and its wants over your worship. Paul says very clearly, put it to death. Get it out of there. Do not let it linger. Do not let it stay on life support. It must go. Verse 6 tells us why. For the wrath of God is coming on account of these. God will not sit idly by when His people live in ways that are against what He calls His people to do. Verse 7, Paul says, this is the way you once lived when you were living in them. This is the way you once walked. Paul is writing to a church in Colossae, and that church is made up not mostly of Jewish people that have converted to Christianity. That church is made up of mostly people that come from a pagan background, come from an idol worship background, come from something other than this Yahweh God that sent Jesus. And so it fits that they would act and live in a manner that was sexually promiscuous. It makes sense that they would have indulged all of their desires through that old way of life. But what I like to read into this, and I think is present, is Paul is saying, that's your past, but it's not your present. That's who you once were. I know where you have been, but you have also been redeemed. Now the Spirit is working in you. Now God has confirmed you as a son and daughter of His. That's who you were. And so your sexual past is not a scarlet letter now that you wear to church every day. 
And yet, how many people come into this room on Sundays or rooms like these on Sundays and they feel judged, they feel watched, they feel ostracized, they feel like they are wearing a scarlet letter for all to see and all they feel is shame. Maybe you're in this room and Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you go, I was sexually active prior to marriage. I had a child out of wedlock. I've had an affair. I've been addicted to pornography. I've misused sex in some other way. What I think we need to understand here in verse 7 is that can be your past. It doesn't have to be your present. You can be changed. There can be redemption. There is salvation for those that have been everywhere, but God will save you from that and has forgiven you of that. We have to let go of that shame and that guilt because it doesn't define you. That is the old you when you have come to Christ and made him your Savior and Lord. That way of life, what Paul is saying, is incompatible with the way of Christ. And then he builds another list for us in verse 8. He says this. He says, uh, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. See, this second list is a little more acceptable in church. We find it all the time in churches around the nation and in church even ours. Quarrels, strifes, frustration, slander, falling outs are all too common among people who claim that Jesus is their Savior and Lord. And Paul says we've got to put it away. It doesn't have a place here. Remove it. Get rid of it. Get it out of here. What's in that list? Anger. A smoldering or hatred towards someone or something. Wrath or rage. That's just acting upon that anger, putting actions to it. Malice and slander. It's using vicious and hurtful words or falsifying things about people for their destruction or demise. Obscene talk. It's these filthy mouths that both infect the speaker and the hearer. Most of these things deal with our attitudes and with our language. They're highly relational. I read this convicting line this week. It says, words do not merely convey information or let off steam. No. They change situations and relationships, often irrevocably. They can wound as well as heal. Jesus says that the mouth speaks out of an overflow of the heart. Is what's coming out of you is what is in you. Those aren't random words being said. Those are random words you're holding in. Jesus taught that the one who is angry with a brother is guilty just like the one who murders. Verse 9, he says, and he brings up lying. Do not lie, I think is yeah, do not lie to one another. We need to put away that anger, that wrath, that malice, that slander, that obscene talk, and we have to stop lying. We have to speak honestly. We have to be truthful. We have to have our yes be a yes and our no be a no instead of trying to get by in life a little bit easier by twisting the truth to fit our comforts. All of this, Paul says, must be put away. To put off the old self, as he writes in verse 9. Put off the old self with its practices. All right, I'm on. 
I hope this makes sense. I have wrestled with this all morning, but I hope it makes sense. I am a germaphobe, okay? And a germaphobe is a growing problem, unfortunately, in your life because once you start seeing germs, then it's hard to get over what you see, right? It's hard to, when you go, oh, I've been eating and I forgot to wash my hands after going to the bathroom. Now it's like I feel this queasiness in me, right? If you're a germaphobe, maybe you're like, I just rubbed some dirt on it, you'll be okay. I don't know which one person you are. I'm becoming a little germy over here. But it's an irrational issue, okay? It starts off with, I need to wash my hands after going to the bathroom before you eat, or wash now, wash your hands every time before you eat. Now it's grown into, when I go home for lunch and I sit, I have one hand that holds my food and the other hand that handles the remote control for my television. You can't switch the two. Germs, okay? But it's a growing problem. So now when I go to the airport or I go out to a park and I sit on the bench, those are outside clothes. And when you start thinking about what happened with your outside clothes and where your outside clothes have been, you don't want to bring your outside clothes to your inside sanctuary where you sit on your couch and where you lay on your couch. Do you see how it becomes a developing problem that if I allow it to continue, it's going to be debilitating? I'm not twisting doorknobs three times because I have OCD, okay? I'm not at that point yet. I'm not, you know, in a hazmat suit. I didn't really even wear a mask much during COVID, okay? So I'm irrational and not logical with my germs. But it becomes this problem that I see more and more as you start going down the path, okay? That was a negative example. Please hold with me. What Paul is trying to teach us here, okay, is we have put off that old self and we are to put on this new self that is being renewed with Christ. He's stepping into this concept of sanctification. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit working inside the life of the believer, making them more aligned with the life of Christ. Here is what I want us to take from that. Hopefully, the longer we begin to grow, and the deeper we grow with Christ, the more and more we see the grossness, the vileness, the incompatibility with Jesus, all the ways of life that we've been living. As we grow in holiness, we begin to see what does not or should not be in our lives. As I've gone down this path of germophobia, it's not full-on germophobia, but I worry about it. I begin to see germs way more. Like, don't hand me a dollar bill, right? That's just disgusting, right? Who knows how long? That thing's been in circulation for 50 years? That is awful. My hope is that as we continue to live this life, the things that we are putting to death, the things that we are putting away, were things that we didn't even think twice about. 10 years ago, but we're battling further on the enemy's territory because we're advancing in our holiness. We're pushing back. And so now maybe it's not uh, addiction to these things, but maybe we're stepping in. I don't even want to speak with those jokes. I don't even want to speak in that way. I don't even want to use that word. I don't even want to, to flippantly uh, flip through that or watch that. We want to be growing in our holiness 
as God is revealing it more and more. Paul says, put off the old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed, which is being sanctified, which is after the image of its creator. It's Genesis 1.27 language here, friends, where God says he has made man and woman in his image, and then we have ruined that and rebelled against that, and then now as we are coming to Christ and allowing him to be the Lord of our lives, we are being renewed and being brought back to what we originally should have been in the image of our Creator. So let's get to the last verse now. We said last week, changed lives live changed lives. Paul is telling us how to change our life in verses 5 through 10. Now verse 11, he's talking about something even deeper. Verse 11, he says, here, meaning the church, there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We live in what feels like the most divided country or time of this country ever. We forget that our country went to war with each other, and that was a pretty divisive time as well. But we live in a very divided time. Politics feels like, well, if you're for that, then I need to be against that. We are debating and divided on what we should do with national debt or student loans or how to care for the poor, the sanctity of life. What should we do about race and how do we work through that? It is very divisive right now, but division is not new. We've been divided a long time, and Paul is writing to people who are considering division. And he says, this new life that you have found in Jesus creates a new community in the church. This new life creates a new community. No longer do the distinctions of your past, of your pigment, of your place of origin, they do not determine your standing with the people of God. They may determine where you stand in society, but among the people that are saved by Jesus Christ, they have no bearing one writer notes that one of the most remarkable achievements of the first few decades of the gospel being sent out and set, setting the world on fire, he says, is that it brought together people of different color, of different castes, and of different backgrounds. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek. The Greeks would have been the privileged people in society. They would have looked down on everybody else. Oh, you're weird, Jews. Why would you worship in that way? The Greeks would have been the exalted place but the Jews would have also thought of themselves as exalted. They were the chosen people of God. They were the special seed. They were that special race. And so both groups would go, we're better than you. And what Paul is saying is that neither of you have room to boast. You both need the same uh, grace. You both receive the same gift from God. Circumcised and uncircumcised is another in and out mentality. One group saying, we're more devout. Look, we have, we have mutilated ourselves for the sake of our God, to show our devotion. And the other group is going, why would you do that? Jesus has done it all. You're wrong. And, and even the fact that you've done that is, is just dumb. And what Paul is saying is, no, we're not going to divide on circumcision and uncircumcision. It doesn't matter. Barbarian would have been a person that was not a Greek speaker. And so because they did not speak the same language, they would be treated differently. That happens today in our country, where if you don't speak my language or if you have a strong accent that makes it hard for me to understand you, you begin to treat people differently. I've seen it. Scythians were seen as even more 
so further down the rung, and they were just a step above savages in the thought of the modern world or that day. Paul says we're not dividing on those lines. That's not how the church operates. Then he gets to slave and free. One was regarded as a property. The other was regarded as a person. And Paul says, nope, we're not dividing. There is no division. There is no separation. We're not based on status or language or color or circumcision, ethnic heritage, country of origin. We are not exalting one type of person over another. Christ is all. He died for you. Every one of you is a person for whom Jesus died to save. Every one of you is a person who indwelled with the same spirit as me. Every one of you is a person that God has given His grace to. Jesus even says in Matthew 25, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. When you fed the hungry, when you clothed the naked, when you gave water to the thirsty, when you visited the poor, when you cared for, or you visited the prisoner and you cared for the poor, you are caring for me. We are not dividing is what Jesus, or what Paul is saying. There's no elite group. There's no special privileges based on nationality or native tongue. No, slaves can lead free men in, the, in a Bible study. Barbarians can be the devout followers that are examples. We are not dividing. In church, we are not dividing either on any of those lines. Christ is all and in all. I love the diversity of this place. I love that in the last year and a half that I have been here, we have seen people of different uh, origins from different countries. We have seen people of different ages. Every age group from about 80 to zero has started attending this church regularly in the last nine months. We are not a church that says you've got to look just like me, you've got to act just like me, you've got to spend just like me, you've got to live just like me, you've got to be colored just like me. No, we are a church for all people to come and find and follow Jesus together. This is who we are. And so what is Paul saying? And I've got to land this plane. Sorry, this was a fun one to teach, but probably not the most fun to hear, but it's been a fun one to teach. Paul is saying this. Kill it or be killed by it. Kill the sexuality temptations. Kill the relational issues. Kill the divisions. I want to leave you with one phrase that I need you to remember. We must take radical steps for the sake of holiness. For too long, believers have taken pretend steps. We've taken small steps. We've taken steps that don't cost us anything and we hope it transforms our lives. And no, we've got to be done with that. We have to take radical steps for the sake of holiness and say, following you, God, is worth more than anything else. And I'm going to cut that off. I'm going to eliminate that. Radical Steps must be taken. Major steps. Steps that only make sense because God is God. Jesus truly lived, died, and was raised from the dead, and His Spirit dwells within me. So what is a radical step? A radical step is confessing an extramarital affair. A radical step is joining a 12-step group to help you overcome that addiction. A radical step is flushing those substances that you have started using and you can't stop. A radical step is setting alarms because your laziness is causing problems in your life and your pursuit of holiness. A radical step is reconciling with the one that hurt you, and it's seeking forgiveness from the one that you hurt. A radical step is 
Giving up a smartphone if your obsession with technology has become too much. A radical step is deleting that app or that account if your uh, relationship with a social media has become deteriorating to your life. A radical step is destroying the idols that you have placed in your life. A radical step is maybe seeking counseling and professional help because the thoughts and the depression that is overtaking you is too much. You and I must take radical steps to, for the sake of holiness to combat this sin. Because if we let it linger, it will become a longing, and longings become a way of life. Sin must be killed or it will kill us. I end with this very uh, tough story. A good friend of mine is an example of what happens when you do not allow or you do not put to death sin. It started for him with temptation for sexuality, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it took over his life. It didn't stop at a few images. It didn't stop at a few movies. It didn't stop at these things. It became more and more a part of his life. And then, when it was exposed, it ruined everything. It ruined his life. It ruined his marriage. It ruined his relationship with his kids. He hasn't been able to see his grandkid for the grandkid's whole life. It's ruined his career and ministry. It's ruined everything. Because he didn't put it to death. He allowed it to linger. And it took over. And he told me a haunting word one time. He said, about 12 years ago, I got exposed a little bit. And I sought out a counselor. I met one time with him. And I said, ah, it's too much. I'm going to just try to do this on my own. He said, Jordan, I should have done it. It cost everything because I wouldn't spend that cost. I wouldn't invest. I wouldn't take a radical step. A week and a half ago, I was sitting down at lunch because that counselor is a good friend of mine. And I told him the story. And I said to Jimmy, the counselor, I said, Jimmy, I said, that story haunts me and is a caution to me. Because if we allow sin to linger, it becomes a longing and it becomes our lifestyle. And I said, he was not willing to take the radical steps for the sake of holiness. He wasn't willing to invest in holiness. He wasn't willing to give it up. And it ruined everything. Friends, some of you have been battling different things for years and taking small steps and hopeful steps and maybe pretend steps if you're being honest. And my urge to you today is take radical steps for the sake of holiness because sin only ruins lives. That's all it does is it destroys. Let's pray. Dear God, I, I don't know what you are wanting exactly to convey to the individuals in this room. But I pray, God, that we stop playing the game of pretending we're not sinners. First John says we're liars if we're doing that. 
Lord, I pray that we, that people in this room today will hear the conviction of your words and they will, be, they will respond to it. That they will not let it linger, they will not let it remain, but Lord, they will put to death the sin that they have allowed to fester, to grow, that's taking over. Lord, I pray right now for courage for those who are battling and struggling. I pray for boldness for them to do what it takes by your power and through your spirit to overcome what is so burdening them. Lord, I pray that today you start the journey of changing lives where people are saying, I'm done with that. No more. I'm not giving it an inch. And I'm going to start chopping it down. Lord, I pray for the person in here who is addicted to something. Lord, will they seek out help? I pray for the one that is hurting and feels captive to whatever it is. Lord, will you heal I pray for marriages, for honesty within there. And that, that you, will, you will bind them together in this grace that you are pouring out, that they may show grace to one another, but we will no longer just live these lies. But your goodness and your truth shines through. However these men and women in this room, however you're convicting them, give them the response today. May they respond to who you are and to your words to them. It is in your name that we